0: to take your Bible this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to talk to you about, out of this text, about the compelling beauty of a particular aspect of gospel grace that we don't normally think of as compelling or beautiful. There is a compelling beauty to an aspect of gospel grace that I think we'll see as this passage that we read together, unfolds before us. Now, you'll remember as we've been making our way through the book of Ephesians, and we've been learning and celebrating the beauty of God's glorious gospel grace, we've made some stunning discoveries along the way. Not just stunning, but actually sort of the kind of discovery that is breathtaking, jaw-dropping, life-impacting. And at the heart of all of those discoveries has been this realization that God is at work bringing about a plan, and at the core of that plan, sort of the focus of that plan is to bring and to restore shalom to the entire universe. We talked a little bit about this last week as we unfolded this mystery that Paul had made known to Paul and that Paul is now making known to us And we saw in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that at the core of that mystery, at the heart of that mystery, was the fact that God, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, through His life of obedience, and His voluntary, vicarious death for us on the cross, made a peace, made shalom, brought about order and harmony and divine favor and blessing. And that's how Paul actually opens up the, the book. He, he acknowledges that something monumental has happened that has changed everything for you as a believer. And, and he calls you and he calls me to celebrate that by blessing God for having blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places. The mark of shalom is divine favor and divine blessing. So he's alerting you in the very beginning phrases of the epistle that God has done something amazing to bring shalom into reality for you. And then we noted that there is uh, not just this reality conceptually, but it's actually happened. That God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen people to the image of his Son, and to bring about shalom on earth in their lives and in their homes and in the body that they now comprise that God has given to His Son to head. And that model, that, that group of people who have now experienced shalom in very real ways in their personal life, in their families and in their households and in the church that, that God has made them apart. part, are to model that and to display that, the beauty of that, to the entire cosmos. Because that's one day what it's all going to look like. And then as we made our way through this sort of jaw-dropping discovery of what God is really up to, we also noted that there is a very ancient enemy of God who has at his disposal immense forces. You go to chapter 6 and you read, that there are multiple armies, multiplied, uh, just, just myriads of evil armies that are marked by wickedness that are at his disposal, and he is utilizing them to stand in the way of this plan. There is an enemy who is determined to disrupt and derail and, and damage and defile the shalom that God has established. And God has given to you and to me instruction about what we're to do about that. We are to walk in a way that is worthy of that shalom, and we are to stand fast. In other words, we're to hold the ground that God has given back to us in our lives, in our homes, and in our churches against this enemy. And we're going to get to chapter 6 and find out that God has made an abundant provision for us to do that. Now, when you think about that big picture that God is painting for you in the book of Ephesians, God has done some amazing things to get you ready for that. Let me give you some examples. First of all, God has enlightened you about the plan. I mean, He told you. He gave you enlightenment about this. You and I would be living our lives like we've been living all along And we would have just added Jesus into the mix because that's how we get to heaven. And we would have had no idea of the big thing that God was doing through the ministry of His Son in your life and in mine until God opened our eyes and enlightened us. And then God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we would be enabled with all power that is necessary to live this way to accomplish this amazing mission. And if that weren't enough, God the Father then commissioned God the Son, not just to save us and to sanctify us, but to equip us, to give us gifts. And in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way through verse 16, we read about the fact that Jesus Christ has given to each of us gifts. He's measured out those gifts And then he has given to the church gifts, gifted men, whose job it is to equip us so that we know how to use the gifts that God has given us so that we can work the plan in our home, in our lives, and in the church. And then on top of all of that, he has given a very specific wisdom from the Spirit so that we, by that wisdom... And through that power can display the transforming power of the gospel as this plan is worked out in our daily lives. And that's the passage that we read a moment ago. Look carefully, Paul says in verse 15. Look carefully then, in light of everything that I've been talking to you about, Paul says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time Because of the nature of the season, the day, it's an evil day. You live in this present evil world. You live in this present evil age. And the day in which you live is marked by evil because of who is energizing it. And we read about that in chapter 2. There is the God of this world who is at work in this world. And he is energizing the people of this world to accomplish his purposes And you are living in that age and in that day. And because of that, God has given to you a wisdom by which you can navigate this present evil age in this present evil day if we live out the wisdom. And He has given us a spirit that indwells us, and all of us have Him, that can take that wisdom and use it in two amazing ways. And that's what's talked about here. For that wisdom to work in our lives, there are two things that have, to be hap- that have to happen in us. And here they are. Number one, we have to let the Spirit fill us. We have to let the Spirit do something in our life. We have to let the Spirit fill us. And what is He going to fill us with? Paul has already told us that earlier in the book. He is going to fill us up with whatever fills God, we have been told very clearly in verse three or chapter three, verse nineteen, that, that god's intent is that we would be filled with the fullness of God. So what does Paul mean when he encourages us to allow the spirit of God to fill us with whatever fills God, and I would suggest to you that What Paul has in mind is this, there are attributes that are true about God that should be true about us. Now, there are some attributes that are true about God that will never be true about us in the same way that they're true about God. For example, God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. And those attributes are uniquely His. We have Power, but not like God. We have knowledge, but not like God. We have presence in time and space, but not like God. So there are qualities and attributes of God that are unique to Him, but there are also qualities and attributes of God that He intends for us to have in our own life mercy, kindness, truth, justice. And so Paul is saying, this wisdom that is going to make such a difference in the outworking of the plan it is going to depend on you letting the Spirit of God fill you with what fills God, that you would be marked by that and that you would be controlled by that. And the way that you know that's true is there is a certain fruit that the Spirit of God produces in you, and we call those the fruits of the Spirit. And you read about those fruits in Galatians chapter 5. So Paul says if you're going to use the wisdom in a way that is going to transform who you are and what you are doing as you live out this plan, you are going to let this, need to let the Spirit do a unique work in you. You're going to need to let the Spirit fill you with whatever is filling God. But there's a second thing that has to happen with relationship to the Spirit of God, you are going to have to submit to whatever the Spirit of God tells you to do. And we see that in a different portion of Scripture. We see that in Galatians uh, chapter uh, 6, when we are told that we are to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5, actually, we are to walk in the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit, Paul says, we will not fulfill, we will not live out the lusts of our fallen nature, of our flesh. And when you allow the Spirit of God to do this, when you allow the Spirit of God to fill you with what fills God, and you respond to the Spirit of God in humble submission, and you follow His leading, what He has told you in His Word, then three things will happen to you. Your communication will change. Look at verse 19 of this text. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Your communication changes. And then your attitude changes. Notice the next thing that happens. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our communication changes, what we talk about. How we talk about what we talk about. And our attitude changes. But there's a third thing that changes. And it is our relationships are totally transformed. And they're transformed like this. Submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. When the Spirit of God is filling you up with the things that fill God... And when you are responding to the instruction the Spirit of God has given you when you're walking in the Spirit, your communication changes, your attitude changes, and your relationships are transformed because you have humbly come to the Spirit of God and like you are submitting to God, you are submitting one to another. And this is so important in the text. That I would suggest to you that that this really marks the reality of any claim that you and I have when we tell somebody, I love God, and I'm following God, and I am obeying God. You know, when, when you tell somebody that, when you say, look, you know what? As I live out my life, I'm so thankful for the Lord. I love the Lord. I'm rejoicing in the Lord today. I'm following the Lord. Paul says, here is a way for your own heart to test that out. And the way for you to test that out is this, are you transformed in your communication? Are you transformed in your attitude? And are you transformed in the relationships that mark your life? Are you submitting to God and are you submitting one to another? And, 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 and we can go to the scripture and we can actually see that when we fail to properly submit to the authorities that God has placed in our life, we are actually resisting God. That's stunning. Listen to Romans 13, 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. James chapter 4 carries the same idea, verse 6. But he, that's God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And whatever God is doing in Ephesians to display shalom to the universe is going to demand huge amounts of grace. So if I want grace in my life, if I want the energizing ability that comes from the Spirit of God at work in my life, if I want that kind of grace and abundance, I'm going to have to have humility because God gives that kind of grace to humble people. And one of the marks of humility in my life, one of the marks of humility in your life, is this surprising quality, this shocking beauty called submission. So this morning, we need to talk about submission because it is going to be the subject of the next section in the book going from verse 22 all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6. God is going to, through the Apostle Paul, tell every person that he's writing What submission looks like for them. So let's start this morning by looking at this word and making sure we understand it. And so let's begin this morning by by looking at the meaning of the term itself. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about submission? And the idea there is this. The word comes from a term that means to arrange, to place, to order. So when you think about relationships and you bring this term to relationships, it means to structure and to order the people in those arrangements or in those relationships. So the word means to arrange, to structure, and to order. But when Paul used this term, he put a little piece at the front end of it that you and I call a preposition. You remember when you went to English class and, and you started learning about how complicated language was? Remember that? I mean, I remember in high school trying to figure out English. And then I went home and my mom spoke Spanish. And so I was trying to figure out Spanish. I was trying to figure out English. And so I speak both of those as my second language. English is my second language. Spanish is my second language. My mom would have a heart attack and say, you don't even speak that well. So, but, but I learned about this little thing called preposition. How many of you remember prepositions? I'm not going to ask you to define it, so don't get worried here. But a preposition is something that goes on the front end of a word, and it sort of adjusts the meaning of the word. And this little preposition that Paul puts in front of this term, submit, is the word under. Under. And so what Paul's saying is this when God designed relationships the way that he intended for them to function, Every person in that relationship or in those relationships is to be arranged under, which implies something important. It means that we are to arrange ourselves under someone else. Now, you see this in the universe. The entire universe is to be arranged under a person. And who is that person? We know the answer. This isn't a question. Who's the person the entire universe is to be properly arranged to, to be arranged under? And the answer is God, right? But beyond that, there there is an arrangement in heaven. Have you ever been interested in the role of Michael... The what? When you think about the angels of heaven, you know about one of them. His name is Michael, and he is called the what? The archangel, which means that all of the angels in heaven have an arrangement. They are arranged under the authority of this angel, Michael. And on the earth, God has arranged relationships so that they work a certain way, and he has told us that we are to arrange ourselves properly in those relationships by arranging ourselves under the authority structure that God has placed in those relationships. Now, this is to be done personally. Everybody has to do this. When we get to chapter. Uh, 5 verse 21, this is not just something that God is calling wives to do. This is something that every single one of us are supposed to do. I'm supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it. Our sons and daughters are supposed to do it. We're all supposed to do whatever is involved here. So it's to be done personally. But here's the next thing that's interesting about this term and the way that Paul says it it's to be done personally, but it's to be done willingly. Submit yourselves. The idea here is this is not something that God wants to force you into. This is not forced submission. This is actually us coming and saying to God, I want to do this. I'm going to gladly and willingly place myself properly in the relational structure that you have set in my life. And then this is to be the ongoing pattern of our life this is not just a one-time kind of thing this is something that we are to consistently do every day in our life and we're to do this to one another and so biblical submission here means to willingly and voluntarily take my proper place in submission and in glad subjection to all the god-given authorities in my life all right, so that's, that's the first thing that Paul wants us to understand. Now, let's talk about where this applies. And that's the second thing we want to look at, the manifestation of this arrangement that God has set up in heaven and on earth. So where are we to do this? All of us are to do it. We're to do it willingly and joyfully, and we're to do it as the life pattern of our life. So where are we to do this? And, and so if you kind of just... Briefly, look at the scriptures, you'll find that there are a number of places where we're called to do this. Number one, we're called to do it in the world around us to all legitimate authorities, civil authorities that God has placed over us. Romans 13, one, let every soul be subject, there's our word, to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Titus chapter 3 tells us to remind one another to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work. And 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13 reminds us to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, and the text goes on. So we're to do this in the world. That's the first arena. We're to do this in Our Christian marriages, wives are to do this to husbands. And we're going to talk about that next week in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Colossians 3, Titus 2, and 1 Peter 3 all repeat this idea. So it takes place in Christian marriage. It takes place in Christian households. Children are to do this to parents. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And then we're to do this in our Christian vocation. Servants to masters. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Colossians 3, verse 22 repeats that idea. Titus 2, verse 9 tells servants to do this without answering back. And 1 Peter 2, verse 18 tells servants to do so, not just to good masters, but even to the harsh masters over them. So we're to do this in the world, we're to do this in our marriages, we're to do this in our homes we're to do this in our vocation, but we're also to do this in the church, members to elders. 1 Peter 3, verse or 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. First Corinthians 16, 16. That you submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to submit to the elders that God has established to labor with him. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Paul says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they, these elders, watch out for your souls as those who must give account. So let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Are you getting the picture? This is not just something that God wants one little group of people called wives to do. This issue that Paul is addressing, this mark of the Spirit filling your life and the Spirit controlling your walk is to affect your life in all of the major arenas of your life. And so that really brings us to the third thing that we need to ask, and that is, all right, if this is so important and and it's going to happen in all these arenas of my life, what does it actually look like when it's at work? Is there a model that, that, that we can look to? And the answer is yes. But before we look to the model, we, we need to make sure we understand some things. All right. So, so let me give you a text of Scripture. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is an important truth that is given to us. And, and what we find there, Paul says, there is no difference based on gender, based on ethnicity, based on social or religious standing, that every image bearer is equal in value. There's no qualitative or substantive difference between any image bearer in the sight of God. And Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 makes that very clear. So that means this. You could look to anybody in this church and you could pick anybody and you would know that that person before the Lord is as equal and and as valued an image-bearer as yourself. There's no difference based on gender. There's no difference based on background. There's no difference based on ethnicity or social or religious standing. Every image-bearer is an equal image-bearer in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 has another piece of information we need to keep in mind. We're all equal in our value, in the sight of God, but we're also equal in our standing. And Peter really wants to make this clear to all of the husbands. And he's saying this. Now, as you think about your wife, you need to realize she is not subordinate to you because of something that is inherently true about her nature. I've already told you, Paul says, that she's an equal image bearer to you Peter says you need to know something. She has equal standing to you in the sight of God. She is, as you are, a co-heir with you before God. So in the sight of God, not only is your wife an equal image bearer, she has an equal share in the inheritance. Her inheritance, in other words, is not somehow dependent on you. Her standing is not somehow dependent on you. And then Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, that every image bearer who's a Christian is an independent priest before God. We have equal access. So think about that. When you come to verse 21 of chapter 5, but Paul says, now submit yourselves one to another. Paul's saying, look, you're all equal in the sight of God. You have equal standing. You all are members of the same family, and all of you are going to receive the same inheritance. And you have equal access. So what does submission look like when it is being applied to people who are equal in their standing before God, in their status before God, and in their access to God? What does it look like? Is there a place... Where you see it modeled between people who are equal in standing, equal in status, and equal in access. And the answer is yes. You actually see it modeled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ models whatever chapter 5 verse 21 is talking about. Jesus Christ modeled it on earth. He modeled it in His relationship to His heavenly Father. In Matthew chapter 10, and in Matthew chapter 26, and in John chapter 8, and in John chapter 12, Jesus is constantly saying things that remind you that whatever He is doing, He is doing because the Father told Him to do it. Or whatever He is saying, He is saying because the Father told Him to say it. And when it came to the very last night of his life, as he is in the garden and he is praying and asking God for help, what ends up happening is he is asking God to do his will and not his own. Correct? So you have an example of Jesus modeling what this looks like to his heavenly father. You have an example of what it looks like when he models it to his earthly father. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, he functionally relates to his earthly parents. And then you have the Holy Spirit modeling the same thing in heaven. He models it in his relationship to God the Father. He models it in his relationship to God the Son. And then you have the church modeling it now in this realm to her heavenly shepherd and now to her under shepherds. And you can see that in Hebrews chapter 13. So this is how it looks like when it is modeled out before the Lord. Now I'm getting a little signals from some of you that something is wrong. So I'm going to just zip up my pants here because they somehow became unzipped. And there's no easy way to do that. I was trying to hide behind this. And just kind of sneak down here. I thought about doing this and preaching like this. Or maybe preaching like this. And I think all of you would worry, what in the world is going on? I saw the smiles in some of your faces. So, you know, the best way to, to handle an awkward moment like that is to let it be an awkward moment. Have you ever had awkward moments in your life? You ever had an awkward moment in your life? What do you need when, when you have an awkward moment in your life? You say, where are you going with this? I got to figure out a way to make this part of the sermon. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just an awkward moment. You need two things. You, you need honesty. Like, I can't hide this. This is going away. Right? I can act like it's all good. And so the rest of the day, I'm just going to be walking around like this. I can act like it's all good and just pretend. Or I can be honest. And then I need what? I need grace. You're going to have to extend grace because this is a memorable moment. You're going to go home and say, remember when? Ten years from now, Pastor, do you remember when? Right? And so, you know, as we think about this text, we're going to need humility and we're going to need the same kind of grace in a much bigger way. Because submission is a very telling thing in our lives. And so that brings us really... To the third, the fourth thing, rather, we, we know what it means. We know we're supposed to do it, where we're supposed to do it. We know what it looks like in the life of Jesus, in the life of the Holy Spirit, in the life of the Church. But why is it why is it so important? Why does it matter so much? You know, when you think about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, what do you think drove Jesus' submission to His Father? And I'm going to suggest that what drove it was loving devotion. Loving devotion to the Father and loving obedience to His will. And I would suggest that the same thing is true for the Holy Spirit. There is loving devotion to the Father, loving devotion to the Son, and willing, loyal obedience to both. Jesus said, my Father is going to send you a spirit. And later he says, I'm going to send you that spirit. The Holy Spirit is rightly arranging himself both to the Father and to the Son. And he's doing it out of love. Why does the church submit to Christ? Because we love him. We are loyal to him. There's not a one of us, if we were really thinking out loud, there's not a one of us that would say this. You know what? I would actually like to be the head of the church. I know Jesus is, but but I would actually like that. I would would actually want to be that. On the earth, when that happens in a little church, you have a guy named Diotrephes, and we're warned about that, right? Because that's horrific. We, the church at large, submit to Christ because we love Him. And that's what drives the kind of submission that we're talking about. And that's why it's so important. Why does it matter? It matters, first of all, because we are members of a body that has a leader. It has a head. We are all members of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Ephesians 1 talks about God putting all things under the feet of Christ, And appointing him to be the head, the leader over everything for the church. And in chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, when, when God talks to our wives about their relationship to us, he says, now let me help you understand this. There is another entity that has a relationship to Christ, and it's the church. And just like the church arranges herself under her head, you are to arrange yourself under your head. So we're to do this because it is the way we relate to our head. But here's the second reason that this is important, that submission is important to us. We are participants in an amazing plan that God is working out through Christ to restore shalom to the universe. God intends for all of creation to be in submission to Him. And he is working to bring this about. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, we are told, you know something. You know, just by looking around, that the current creation is not in submission to him. But, but, there is a new creation. And you're it. And that new creation is doing something that the old creation can never do. That new creation has been energized and enlivened by the Spirit of God so that they can do what the old creation can't do, they can submit to God. Romans chapter 8 says that people who live in that old creation are driven by their flesh, their old nature, and their old nature, Romans says, cannot submit to God. So how did, how did it happen... That people from that old creation are now submitting to God. And the answer is they were taken out of that old creation and they were made a new creation. And they were given to Christ and they are rightly related to Him. And they are displaying what that looks like, the beauty of what that looks like to the world around them. So we're to do this because we're participants in a plan and we're members of Christ's body. But we're also soldiers in a battle a rebel enemy has come to destroy and to disfigure the shalom that God has established in our lives. And Paul says, you are to rightly arrange yourself to the Spirit of God because you don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then we are also, fourthly, members of god's own household now let me just stop here for a minute to make sure that we grasp this the households in ephesus were badly broken models of the wrong use of power and the devastating damage that the wrong use of power brought to the people who lived under its use i mean pagan households in paul's day had horrific uses and abuses of power Wives found ways to resist this because of its oppressive nature and its damaging nature in their lives. Wives found ways to resist it and to mark out spheres of independence that often thwarted the desires of her pagan husband. Children who lived under that authority resented it and, and chafed under it and were embittered by it. And servants who had to live under it, recoiled from it and did everything in their power to sabotage it and deviate from its purposes and damage its objectives wherever, whenever, and however they could. And so when you looked at the households in Ephesus, they were damaged by this abusive use and misuse of power. But there were in Ephesus some households that were radically different power in those households was not used to control or to abuse power in those households was used to serve so that those under that authority would actually flourish and thrive husbands and fathers and masters used their power and their authority in a shocking way to serve their wives and their children and their servants and they did so selflessly and sacrificially, not out of some act of, of kindness, but really out of deep and genuine love. And consequently, those who lived in those kinds of households where this kind of power was being used. For these ends thrived. They loved living in that household. They, they reverenced that master. They loved that husband. They loved that husband or, or father. They loved that Master, and and they lived in a household where where power was used not to control but for the good and the growth of those in that household. This was shocking. And pagans who saw this and who really understood what was going on in that household would conclude something. They would conclude this household must have the favor of the gods. In fact, the gods themselves would like to have a family like this because the gods themselves had families that were driven by the abuse of power. I mean, think of the the Roman pantheon of gods or the Greek pantheon of gods and just listen to the mythology and the stories about those gods. Zeus had a wife, Hera. And Hera was constantly running around on him, thwarting him, trying to find ways to undo what he had done over here. And, and it was just a mess. Their marriage was an absolute mess. Their kids were at each other's throats. They were at, uh, they, they were at the throats of their parents. They were constantly uh, doing things to shame them or, or to go against them. I mean, the family, the, the Greek gods and their families were a mess. And their servants were constantly in rebellion against them. And, and maybe to get their servants, their worshipers, to line up, Zeus would give them some divine favor, but more often than not, he would hurl a thunderbolt at them and bring some kind of m- misfortune. And these were the families of the gods of their mythology, and all of a sudden, here in Ephesus is a household that is so radically different. Power is used in such different ways ways and these people want to know how did that happen how did that come about and the answer is gospel grace that's the answer gospel grace you know when you think about this sort of submission that we're talking about there are obstacles to it that come in our lives you know, we, we are ignorant of what it really means. We, we really don't know what God has said about this. We become deceived about it. There's spiritual deception. Satan has deceived us about this. this. This can't be good for you to submit to somebody else as an equal image bearer before the Lord. Culturally, we have listened to the culture around us. Our flesh has fought against this very, very hard. Our flesh does not want to submit to anybody or anything. Instead, our flesh wants everybody else to submit to us. And then there's the the obstacle of inconsistent or even disobedient authorities that are exercising their authority in wrong ways over us. By the way, this is why the boundaries of biblical submission are so important. Because of these obstacles and because of what God is trying to do in our households and in our lives and in his church when god talks about biblical submission he says this we do it out of reverence for christ we we do it later in the fear of the lord submission to our earthly authority is always framed around the idea that we are submitting to god and so when i submit to god to his will his word and his purposes i can't submit when something is going on in my life or or in the life of somebody else that is contrary to something God has told me to do. I I have to obey God more than men. I'm, I'm not to render submission that disregards or disobeys clear teachings from God's Word or that damages or distorts the purposes that God has in His world or that damages people that He has called and redeemed or desires to call and redeem. This is huge. We're going to talk a little more about what this actually looks like when we get into the how it fleshes out for wives and husbands and children and parents and servants and masters. But we're to do this in the fear of the Lord. And so that brings me to the final thing that we need to talk about here this morning and that is this given all of these factors given what God has said about submission, rightly arranging myself to all of the authorities in my life, how in the world am I going to do this? And the answer is, I need grace. I need grace. So as I close this morning, let me give you three examples of that grace. Go to Acts chapter 10. When you get to Acts chapter 10, we're going to read together verse 38. Go to Acts chapter 10. Peter is preaching to the Gentiles, and he is saying, God shows no partiality, and he has set in your midst the ministry of a man that has changed everything, and that man is Jesus. And Peter is going to explain to you how he actually was able to do what he did. How did Jesus live this perfect life of obedience? How did he submit to imperfect earthly authorities? And the answer to that is in verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And by means of the power that the Spirit of God gave him, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. How did Jesus do his earthly ministry? How did he render perfect obedience in his earthly ministry? And the answer was a power that God made available to him through the Holy Spirit. That's example number one. Go to Ephesians chapter 3, and let's look at the second example of this grace, this power that energized people. In Ephesians chapter 3, Verse 7, Paul is now going to explain, and he's going to give us insight into how his ministry had such spectacular success. I mean, how was it that everywhere Paul went and opened his mouth, churches would spring up, people would be changed? How was it that Paul had such a spectacular ministry? And the answer was, there was a unique power that was made available to him. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. So, example number one how did Jesus do his earthly ministry? Answer a power that came through the Holy Spirit, a grace the Holy Spirit gave to him. How did Paul do his ministry? Answer a grace a power the Holy Spirit gave to him. So here's the question. How are you going to do your ministry? How are you going to submit to the government that God places over you? How are you going to submit to the church leaders God has put over your life? How are you going to submit in your home to your mom and dad? How are you going to submit to your Husband, how are you going to submit to your master? And the answer is, you're going to need what Jesus needed. You're going to need what Paul needed and what God has supplied to you. You are going to need the Spirit of God and the grace and the power that has been made available to you. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. You need grace, and I need grace. We will never do this apart from grace. So as we close this morning, let me ask you this. Are you manifesting the beauty of grace-enabled submission in your life? Have you taken your place? Have you done so voluntarily and willingly? are you doing it joyfully and consistently do you know your place have you taken your place are you remaining in your place joyfully and consistently and are you advancing god's plan from that place are you letting god use that submission in your life and in the lives of others to carry out this amazing plan that he's working out for his glory and for your good lord thank you for your grace it really is amazing lord as we come to that grace this morning we come with humble hearts thanking you for it asking that you would manifest it in our lives lord the first place we need that grace is when it comes to dealing with our sinful soul lord we need to be saved from our sin and maybe there are people here this morning that need that but lord all of us need it when we are dealing with the areas of our life that need to be sanctified and then lord we need it as we manifest the kind of biblical grace-driven grace-flavored submission to the leaders that you have placed over us in every sphere of life Maybe you're here this morning and the Lord has been working in your heart over the last number of weeks, and you've come to that place where you're going, you know, I actually need to be saved. I need to become a Christian. We would love to talk to you this morning. We'll be around after the service. Please catch one of us. Maybe you're here this morning and God's been at work in your life, and there's a particular area where the message directly touched on something. The Spirit of God is at work in your life over and you would say, you know what, I really want to talk with somebody about that. I want to pray with somebody. We'd love to do that this morning. Please catch any one of us and we'll make sure that we have an opportunity to pray with you or to set up a time when we get together over a cup of coffee and pray together and talk together about God's work in your life. We want to be available to you as your pastors and your leaders and those of uh, us who love you and care for you and love one another. Let's have that ministry together. Lord, thank you for it again and for what you've said to us this morning. May your grace strengthen us. We commend ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen.